Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, part five of General Conference McNuggets. In this continuing series of episodes, Radio Free Mormon is highlighting some of the notable aspects of the October 2019 General Conference. I am proceeding forward at a blistering pace, with the goal in mind of having this series completed before the next General Conference occurs this coming weekend. Today is Tuesday, March 31st, 2020, and Radio Free Mormon continues to put out an unprecedented number of podcasts with the hope that this will help those of you who are sheltering at home, which should be the vast majority of you, by the way, who may have some additional time on your hands with nothing better to do than listen to new episodes of Radio Free Mormon. In the last episode, we got through the first three talks in the General Women's Session of General Conference. Tonight, I hope to get through the last three talks of the General Women's Session. As you will recall, the first three talks were given by women, which is who you would normally expect to be hearing in a session called General Women's Session. The last three talks, however, given primacy of place, will all go to male leaders of the church, specifically the three members of the First Presidency of the LDS Church. I will comment on Elder Iring's talk, I will comment on President Nelson's talk, and I will spend a little bit of special time with the talk given by Elder Oaks, primarily because I find his talk somewhat troubling, and I think there's a lot of comments that need to be made on it in order to hopefully try and set the record straight. But before I get to that, I want to read for you an email that I got from a listener to this podcast. I will not give the name of this particular listener, but I will say, because I think it's okay for me to say, that he posts under the name The Chair. The chair writes a very insightful email with a number of important comments in it, and these comments revolve around prior episodes in which I talked about Joseph Smith's treasure digging and my reference that I have commenced reading the book by D. Michael Quinn titled Early Mormonism and the Magic Worldview. Now, I am not going to get into detail about that book and the things that I am learning as I reread Early Mormonism and the Magic Worldview. However, I will state that one of the things that D. Michael Quinn points out and documents to the nth degree is Joseph Smith's practice of treasure digging prior to his receiving the gold plates from the angel Moroni in 1827. In fact, D. Michael Quinn dates the commencement of Joseph Smith's treasure digging in Palmyra back to the year 1820, seven years prior to his receiving the gold plates, and coincidentally the same year in which he received the first vision. So not only is this year the 200th anniversary of Joseph Smith's first vision, which will be celebrated and commemorated appropriately, I presume, in the upcoming General Conference, but it is also the 200th anniversary, according to D. Michael Quinn's research, of Joseph Smith commencing his practice of treasure digging in upstate New York in the Palmyra area. Now, Joseph Smith conducted a number of treasure digs. He was the individual who was tasked with finding where the treasure was buried, and he did this using his seer stone, one of his several seer stones that he had over the course of his career, and placing it into a hat, looking into the hat, and being shown the place where the treasure lay. And yet, we also know that absolutely none of these treasure digs resulted in the actual recovery of any treasure. Now think about that for a second and think about the special skill set that a person such as Joseph Smith must have in order to continue to be able to lead grown men to places where treasure allegedly was buried, have them expend great amounts of effort in digging for the treasure, and then be able to come up with some reason as to why it is that the treasure was never recovered. Now coming up with an excuse for such failure is not necessarily a difficult thing. The difficult thing is to come up with an excuse for one failure and then 
another failure, and then repeated failures, and then everything being a failure. To come up with excuse for repeated failures and no successes, and to have those excuses and reasons be so convincing that there are still a number of grown men who believe that you have a prophetic gift. Now, certainly there were some men who finally got fed up with Joseph Smith's excuses and stopped going out on treasure digs with him thinking, well, he really doesn't have any power. And yet we know that there were other men who continued to believe in his abilities, men such as Josiah Stowell, who hired Joseph Smith to go on a treasure dig in 1825. Joseph Smith directed the men to where the treasure was buried. The men digged. There was no treasure found. And yet Joseph Smith was able to come up with an excuse to justify the not finding of the treasure, the failure of the treasure dig that was so convincing that Josiah Stoll continued to believe in his supernatural abilities to find treasure. Now, this is an aspect of Joseph Smith's treasure digging career that cannot be overemphasized because it appears that he was able to transfer those very same skills into his career as a prophet and as a leader of the LDS Church. I mentioned one aspect of this in my prior series, Lost in Translation, and gave the example of Oliver Cowdery's being given by God the ability to translate. Oliver Cowdery tries and fails, and now God, acting very much like a treasure spirit, tells Oliver that the reason he failed was because he didn't study it out in his mind. You'll recall that we talked about that at some length. I won't repeat that here. The point being that there is one, a promise of success, there is an attempt to do the deed, there is a failure to accomplish the deed, and then there is an excuse given for why the failure occurred. And the excuse that was given was apparently able to keep Oliver Cowdery in the church and continuing to believe in Joseph Smith's prophetic abilities, in spite of the fact that it was the revelations received through Joseph Smith in section 8 of the Doctrine and Covenants that promised the ability of Oliver to translate, and it was section 9 of the Doctrine and Covenants received through Joseph Smith that gave the excuse as to why Oliver Cowdery failed to be able to translate after he was promised the ability. Now, the early days of Mormonism is a history of remarkable events, and one of the most remarkable of the events of early Mormonism is that it survived. And the reason I say it's remarkable that it survived is that time after time, there was a failure to accomplish the things that God had commanded his saints to do, whether it was to create a bank in Kirtland, Ohio, and have the members contribute and invest in the bank with divine promises of success only to have the bank fail and have members of the church lose most, if not all, of the money they had invested. And perhaps the classic and central example of failure in the early days of the LDS Church was God's command to Joseph Smith in 1834 to take an army with him, this would be Zion's camp, and leave Ohio and go down to Missouri and redeem the land, to get the land back in Jackson County, from which the saints had been forced to leave by other citizens of that county. So how was Mormonism able to survive all of these huge setbacks, not just setbacks in a secular sense, but setbacks in a religious sense? In other words, the failure to accomplish the things that God had promised them that they would be able to accomplish. That is the question that is addressed here in this email from the chair. And the reason, in a nutshell, is that God, through Joseph Smith, was able to come up with convincing excuses for why it was that the Latter-day Saints failed to accomplish the things that God promised them they would be able to accomplish. Now, sure, there were people in the church who left the church over these incidents, who concluded that Joseph Smith had no divine prophetic power and decided to go elsewhere, and yet there were a substantial number of members who were satisfied with the excuses that were made for these failures and continued to be ardent followers of the prophet Joseph Smith. Now to this email. Dear RFM, your recent burst 
of RFM episodes sparks many thoughts. Here are two, one long and one short. Now, I'm only going to go through the first thought because the second thought has to do with more detail. In D. Michael Quinn's book, Early Mormonism and the Magic Worldview, thought one has to do with the subject that we've been discussing now and for which I've just given this rather lengthy introduction. Here we go. Thought number one. Listener J.T. Dewey's connection of the trickster guardian spirit of New York folk magic with the god who moved Oliver Cowdery's translation goalposts reminded me of some scriptures that had always been a puzzle. Now, it's always interesting to me when a study of LDS church history helps reveal the meaning behind scriptures that had formerly been occluded and mysterious. That appears to be what's happened here for this listener. He goes on, safely ensconced in Nauvoo in 1841, Joseph received a revelation that in part explained why the saints had been unsuccessful in establishing Zion in Missouri. At DNC 124 verse 49, the Lord explains, quote, Verily, verily, I say unto you that when I give a commandment to any of the sons of men to do a work unto my name, and those sons of men go with all their might and with all they have to perform that work, and cease not their diligence, and their enemies come upon them and hinder them from performing that work, behold, it behooveth me to require that work no more at the hands of those sons of men, but to accept of their offering. So that's the passage from the Doctrine and Covenants, section 124, verse 49. The email goes on. Oh, they tried hard, and that's what was important? Not really establishing Zion? Was God just kidding about that? It turns out to have been only a test. Something else Joseph was fond of, tests. Anyway, this verse also brings to mind DNC 56 verse 4 where the Lord declares, Wherefore I the Lord command and revoke as it seemeth me good. So he will command things and he will revoke the commands as seemeth him good. And all of this to be answered upon the heads of the rebellious, saith the Lord. This listener continues, This verse is in a cluster of verses that blame the failure of a church project upon the wicked and rebellious amongst the righteous. It seems to set up a principle whereby the church or its leaders can fail because of the rebellious in their midst. So you see, if the church sets out on a task or to fulfill a prophecy, if it is hindered from without by external enemies, God can require that work no more at their hands. But if they are hindered from within by rebels in the ranks, the Lord can revoke as seemeth him good. In either circumstance, the tares beat the wheat. Tares one, wheat zero. I added that last part, sorry. These doctrines are looking more and more like tools for moving goalposts. Well, in the words of Jonathan Streeter, these do look like wood tools, don't they? Not like steel tools. Going on. Of course, sabotage from without or from within have indeed spoiled many a great project in history. But these escape clause scriptures always seem to be declared after the spoiled events. They seem like post hoc explanations. I think these post hoc explanations puzzled me growing up because they chafe against a whole other class of scriptures that teach that God plus one faithful person are invincible. For example, the venerable 1st Nephi chapter 3 verse 7 has Nephi declaring he would go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded, because he knew that the Lord gives no commandment to the children of men, save he first prepares a way for them that they may accomplish the thing he commands them. I'm sure everybody listening is familiar with that passage. And by Nephi's own account, he succeeded at the many impossible tasks given him, despite having 
rebels in the ranks. Now, this is an interesting point, isn't it? Despite having rebels in the ranks, i.e. Laman, Lemuel, and their wives and followers, right? God plus one, i.e. that one being Nephi, God plus one are supposed to be invincible. Later, though, after failure to establish Zion, then debut the escape clause doctrines of revoking and requiring no more the work at their hands. This listener notes parenthetically that there are myriad other scriptures touting God's plus one invincibility, for example, Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. So I think this listener, the chair here, makes a number of good observations. And they are so good, in fact, I wanted to share them with my listening audience. Because these appear to be the two classes of excuses that Joseph Smith was able to leverage, or that God was able to leverage through Joseph Smith, in order to satisfy Joseph Smith's followers as to why it was that Joseph Smith's prophecies and predictions and directions that he claimed to receive from God failed time after time. Either it was the fault of enemies of the church, at which time God could revoke the command he gave and require that work no more at the hands of the Latter-day Saints, or it was the fault of the Latter-day Saints themselves that they simply were not righteous enough in order to complete the task that God had given them. Another thing that strikes me has to do with Zion's camp, a very famous incident in Mormon history. In 1834, Joseph Smith was directed by God, and yes, those revelations are still contained in the Doctrine and Covenants to take an army with him to travel from Ohio down to Missouri to reclaim the land and restore the Latter-day Saints onto the lands in Jackson County from which they had been forcibly ejected. Well, Joseph Smith gathered a number of men with him. They made the long trek during the summer of 1834. They got down to Missouri, and without going into many details, Joseph Smith rather quickly abandoned the project when he saw the opposition that was arrayed against him. Zion's camp then dispersed and Joseph Smith, with many of the members of Zion's camp, beat feet back to Ohio. Several months later, in early 1835, the Twelve Apostles were called in this dispensation and many of the members of the first quorum of Twelve Apostles in the LDS Church had accompanied Joseph Smith as part of Zion's camp. Now, it is frequently heard in the church and taught as part of the correlated curriculum that the primary reason for Zion's camp was in order to prepare and train men such that there would be good candidates to fill the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in early 1835 because many, not all, but many of those men in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles had been members of Zion's camp. Now, historically speaking, I think it's fair to say that the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and the picking of these men who had been in Zion's camp to fill that quorum was really a secondary effect of Zion's camp. It was by no means the primary purpose of Zion's camp. And yet, from a faithful perspective, and one that believes that these revelations came from God through Joseph Smith, it is clear that the primary purpose of Zion's camp cannot be what God said the primary purpose of Zion's camp was, because the primary purpose of Zion's camp, i.e. to redeem the lands of the saints in Jackson County, Missouri, was not fulfilled. Therefore, even though God says it's the primary purpose, and indeed the only purpose, that cannot really have been God's primary purpose. There must have been some ulterior motive that God had in the Zion's camp fiasco. And because approximately a half a year or so afterward, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles was chosen, and many of the first apostles had accompanied Joseph Smith on Zion's camp, now in retrospect, that becomes the primary purpose of Zion's camp. And indeed, that is typically how we hear it taught in the LDS Church today. And in this way, what is a secondary effect of a prophetic direction and prophecy becomes the primary purpose instead. If the thing that God commands to be done and promises will be done does not end up being done, 
then we look for something else that was accomplished in retrospect and we decide that that secondary effect was indeed God's primary purpose. So tying up this first part of the podcast, we can see that the skill set that Joseph Smith developed as a treasure digger in his early years, that of making up excuses for why it is that the treasure digging company never actually found any treasure, were transferable to his subsequent role as a prophet in order to explain the many instances where the prophecies he gave did not come to pass and the divine directions that were given through him failed. Now let's go to the last three talks of General Women's Session of General Conference, October of 2019. President Henry B. Eyring opens up the second half of the General Women's Session with his talk, Covenant Women in Partnership with God. There isn't too much to comment on this talk. The general point of the message is that women should fulfill their role as women, which of course in the Mormon perspective includes being mothers as early as possible and good wives, as well as ministering sisters and even leaders within the women's auxiliaries and the children's auxiliaries. In the context of this talk, President Iring takes the opportunity to hit on one of his favorite themes, which I've identified before in previous conference talks. President Iring is very enamored with the idea that all callings, whether ward callings or state callings, no matter how high or how low, are given by revelation from God. And because they're given directly by revelation from God, it is incumbent, indeed the duty of every member, to accept every calling that is given to that member. He hits upon that idea in the course of this talk. For instance, he says, for each one who makes these covenants, i.e. the covenants of baptism, for each one who makes these covenants, the service that the Lord calls him or her to will be suited perfectly to that person. Now, obviously that means that any callings are given by revelation Every calling is suited perfectly to that person. Therefore, yours not to reason why, yours but to do and accept the calling. A little bit later on, he talks about how it is not up to us to decide what callings to accept or how long to fulfill those callings. In other words, we don't ask to be released from a calling. We fulfill that calling that was given by direct revelation from God until, once again, by direct revelation from God, we are released from that calling. Here's how he encapsulates that idea. You cannot know when or for what length of time your personal mission will be focused on service in calls such as mother, leader, or ministering sister. The Lord out of love, so this is why the Lord takes complete control of your life. In the LDS church, it's out of love. The Lord out of love does not leave us the choice of the timing, duration, or sequence of our assignments. Yet you know from scripture and living prophets that all of these assignments will come either in this life or in the next to every daughter of God. Now, there's a lot to unpack in that sentence, but let me focus on this one point. And that has to do with the idea of free agency in the church, i.e., that God has given men and women, presumably, the freedom to choose for themselves. That it was Satan's plan in the pre-mortal existence to take away the free agency of men. And that God, recognizing that that was a bad plan, did not go with that plan of Lucifer to take away man's free agency, but went with the plan where free agency would be established and honored. Now this is the story of the Grand Council in Heaven that preceded everybody coming to this earth that every single member of the LDS Church is familiar with. We know it backward and forward, we can recite it in our sleep, and that is why it is a little bit jarring when we encounter expressions such as these by President Eyring in a general conference that seem to butt heads with that whole idea of free agency being so important and the freedom to choose. Notice what he says here. The Lord, out of love, does not leave us the choice. Uh, excuse me? 
The Lord does not leave us the choice. I thought that was the whole point of the plan of salvation is that the Lord did give us the choice. But now what he's saying seems to be the opposite of that, that the Lord out of love does not leave us the choice about whether to accept callings, how long to serve in callings, whether we should ask to be released from a calling. No, that is in the hands of God, which really means it's in the hands of your local priesthood leader through whom that calling comes. All I am saying is that when a member of the first presidency of the LDS church says that the Lord does not leave us the choice of the timing, duration, or sequence of our assignments, it makes me wonder whose side he would have voted for in the Grand Council in heaven. Now we need to get to the talk that I have been salivating to discuss with you. This is the talk by President Dallin H. Oaks titled, Two Great Commandments. And the purpose of his entire talk is to explain why it is that the church is justified in its position against accepting the LGBT community as members of the church on an equal footing with heterosexual members of the church. Now this is a bit of a tightrope act that Elder Oaks has to perform. Because on the one hand, Elder Oaks is obviously aware that Jesus is perhaps most famous for ministering to the downtrodden, to the dispossessed, to the marginalized within his culture. And yet on the other hand, he has to explain why it is that this example of Jesus Christ does not require the church and indeed the apostles of the church, those who claim to be apostles of that very same Jesus Christ who is so ministering, nurturing, and inclusive, why the LDS church will not accept homosexuals into the church on an equal footing with heterosexuals. And this is how he commences his talk. President Russell M. Nelson has taught us, this church was restored so that families could be formed, sealed, and exalted eternally. Period. End of quote from President Nelson. He goes on, that teaching has important implications for persons who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender, commonly referred to as LGBT. With that introduction, Elder Oaks now goes on to frame his argument for why it is the church must maintain this position with the story in the New Testament about the two great commandments. We all know what that story is, and indeed he quotes it for us under section one of his talk. Now, when you read a talk, that is given by Elder Oaks in General Conference, you can see that in many instances he does what he does with this talk. And that is that he divides the subsections of his talk and numbers them with Roman numerals. He is the only general authority that I am aware of who regularly engages in this practice of dividing up the written sections of his talk with Roman numerals. I don't know why he does this. Perhaps this is some of his legal training coming through. I will say that many other lawyers have become general authorities in the church and have not divided up their talks with Roman numerals. And yet he does. I get the impression that he wants to impart to his talks an additional sense of gravitas by the use of these Roman numerals. At any rate, he goes over the story of Jesus and the two great commandments at the commencement of his subsection that is numbered with the Roman numeral one. I begin with what Jesus taught were the two great commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. By the way, at this point in his talk, when I was actually watching this live on General Conference, on Saturday evening in October of 2019, I was announcing, even at this point, to the entire room what it was that President Oaks was doing and where he was going to go with his talk. I mean, it was that obvious what he was going to do. And the second is like unto it, he goes on, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. 
Now, Elder Oaks says this means we are commanded to love everyone since Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan teaches that everyone is our neighbor. Well, I'm glad he at least mentioned Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan because his teachings on the second great commandment are going to end up running headlong into the details of that parable as we will see. And here's where he gets to his main point. This is how he reconciles the two great commandments. But our zeal to keep the second commandment must not cause us to forget the first to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. We show that love by keeping his commandments. And so what he's going to do is this. He's going to say, here's the first great commandment to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That means follow his commandments, including maintaining the church's strict position against accepting homosexuals on an equal footing in the LDS church. And we must not allow the second commandment of love your neighbor as yourself to override the first commandment. In other words, we should not allow our love for LGBTQ members of the church, which would naturally lead us to want to accept them on an equal footing in the LDS church. We should not allow that love to override the first commandment, which is determined to treat them as second-class citizens. Okay, let me talk a little bit about this argument made by Elder Oaks. He goes on and he expatiates upon that argument throughout the rest of his talk in subsequent Roman numeraled sections, where he says things such as, The laws that apply most significantly to the issues relating to those identifying as LGBT are God's law of marriage and its companion law of chastity. Both are essential in our Father in Heaven's plan of salvation for His children. So he's going to talk about the laws, in other words, the commandments of God, i.e. those things that fall under the first commandment of loving God, the law of marriage, and the companion law of chastity, and that this represents the first commandment and that accepting homosexual members on an equal footing in the church would violate those laws, and therefore the first commandment, which represents the law, must take precedence over the second commandment, that of love. Now, as a general rule, 90% of the time, maybe 95% of the time, you can follow the first commandment and you can follow the second commandment, and there's not going to be any conflict between the two. But in this 10% or 5% of the time, you're going to run into a situation, and this is a classic example, of where there is a tension and a contradiction between these two commandments. You cannot keep all the commandments that God has given, i.e. love God with all your heart, might, mind, and strength, as Elder Oaks defines it, and at the same time, love your neighbor as yourself, as defined by accepting homosexuals on an equal footing in the LDS church. There is an inherent and necessary conflict between these two commandments in such circumstances, at least from Elder Oaks' point of view. So it is clearly Elder Oaks' position that at any point where there is a conflict between the first commandment and the second commandment, the first commandment represented by law and the second commandment represented by love, that the first commandment must take precedence. And the way we fulfill the second commandment, even in those situations, is by trying to treat nicely the people that we are excluding from full and equal membership in the Lord's church. The very idea of which sounds like a contradiction in terms to many people. How can you treat nicely the people that you are treating as second-class citizens at one and the same time? As Elder Oak says in the subsection marked with the Roman numeral 3, how do we keep the commandment to love our neighbors? We seek to persuade our members that those who follow lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender teachings and actions should be treated with the love our Savior commands us to show toward all our neighbors. So we treat them nicely, we treat them respectfully, even while we are treating them as second-class citizens. And that is the way that Elder Oaks teaches that we follow the second commandment in these situations. Now, Elder Oaks is aware that there are many members of the church who are LGBTQ who have felt marginalized and rejected 
by the church, and indeed they have a very good reason to feel marginalized and rejected by the church, especially in light of the November 2015 policy of exclusion. And that policy, of course, declared those living in same-sex relationships, even if they were legally married, were apostates and children who had one or more parents living in such a relationship were denied being blessed as a baby, being baptized as a child, and if a boy were denied receiving the priesthood and were denied the ability even to go on a mission until and unless they had renounced their parents' lifestyle and received special permission from the first presidency. Then they could be baptized at the age of 18, apparently. Then they could be baptized. Then they could receive the priesthood. If a boy, then they could go on a mission. So as I say, it is understandable why LGBTQ members of the church would feel marginalized and rejected because of the actions of the leadership of the church. But Elder Oaks does not take any responsibility for those feelings of being marginalized and rejected. Instead, he places them on everybody else in the church other than the top leadership. Here's what he says. I'm not making this up. Regretfully, some persons facing these issues continue to feel marginalized and rejected by some members and leaders, top leaders, no, not top leaders, by some members and leaders in our families, wards, and stakes. See, he's not going to go any higher than that. He's not going to actually accept responsibility for these feelings of marginalization and rejection. No, this is not his fault. This is your fault. So once again, he blames the members for the rejection of gay people in the church, which is just another example of how the leaders of the church are constitutionally incapable of accepting any responsibility for any of their decisions and accepting responsibility for the negative impacts that those decisions have on real people, on real members of the church. Now, there are a number of other small things I could say about this talk, but I want to forego that in order to focus on the overall argument that he's making, because the overall argument that he's making is one that ends up landing much more in the camp of the Pharisees that we read about in the New Testament and not in the camp of Jesus Christ that we read about in the New Testament. Elder Oak says that anytime there's a conflict between following the commandments of God and loving our neighbors, then we have to follow the commandments of God. That is exactly the opposite of how I read the New Testament. And indeed, it seems to me that Jesus made a point time after time after time of teaching that when there's a conflict between following the commandments of God and loving your neighbor, i.e. between the first and the second commandment, then it's the second commandment that trumps the first commandment. For example, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, we know that Jesus taught that as ye have done it unto the least of these, ye have done it unto me. In other words, if you minister, if you visit in prison, if you clothe the naked, if you feed the hungry, if you minister to the needs, the physical needs of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. So we do not serve God by not loving our neighbor. We serve God through loving our neighbor. Indeed, that is the only way in which we can serve God. It is, of course, in the Book of Mormon that we read the very oft-quoted scripture from King Benjamin's sermon that when ye are in the service of your fellow beings, ye are only in the service of your God. We really can't serve God. We really can't do anything to help God out. The way we serve God is through serving our fellow beings. And that is why when a conflict arises between following these commandments from God and serving our fellow beings, the default position always has to be that we serve our fellow beings. Because it is only through doing that that we serve God. It is only through doing that that we do it unto God. It is only through doing it to the least of these that we do the same thing unto God. 
Following the same line of thinking, if we refuse to accept LGBTQ people into the church on an equal footing with the heterosexual members of the church, we are doing the same thing unto God. To the same degree that we exclude the least of these, and I'm putting that in quotation marks for purposes of the parable, to the same extent that we exclude the least of these from full membership in the kingdom, we are doing the same thing unto God. We are excluding God. We are excluding Jesus from full membership in the church and from full membership in the kingdom. Now, when you put it that way, it seems obvious to me, and I think it should be obvious to a proclaimed apostle of Jesus Christ, that you wouldn't want to set up a system where you are excluding Jesus Christ from your church or treating him as a second-class citizen within your church. No, you would probably want to do exactly the opposite. And yet it is Jesus Christ himself who teaches that to the extent that you are excluding or treating as second-class citizens the least of these, my brethren, in your church, you're doing the same thing to Jesus. And it is not only this teaching by Jesus Christ in the parable of the sheep and the goats. It is found throughout the New Testament. In fact, Jesus intentionally sets up incident after incident where he breaks the law of Moses, i.e. the commandments, i.e. he violates the first commandment as defined by Elder Oaks in favor of ministering unto the sick, the afflicted, and the marginalized in his community. And he does this with the specific intent of demonstrating that when there's a conflict between the first commandment, i.e. keeping the law, and the second commandment, i.e. loving your neighbor, that it's always loving your neighbor that has to trump the first commandment. For example, we're all familiar with the stories in the New Testament where Jesus heals somebody on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees show up on the scene and they upbraid Jesus for breaking the law of Moses. In other words, he's broken the law of the Sabbath by healing somebody. Now, Jesus could have healed that person the day before, or he could have waited a little bit and healed the person the day after. But he heals that person on the Sabbath in order to create this confrontation and in order to teach this lesson. That when there is a conflict between the first commandment and the second commandment, it is the second commandment that trumps the first commandment. And this is what drove Jesus crazy about the Pharisees. This was his biggest beef with them. We understand that he viewed them as hypocrites. He viewed them as sinners. He had a lot of problems with the Pharisees, but the biggest problem he had with the Pharisees was not only the way they treated the poor, the marginalized within the community, not only the way they were so darn self-righteous about keeping all the commandments of God. The thing that bugged Jesus the most about the Pharisees is that when they used their righteousness and their slavish obedience to the first commandment, i.e. keeping the commandments of God, as an excuse and a pretense and a reason for not following the second commandment of ministering to the marginalized and dispossessed within the community. And that is why he told the parable of the Good Samaritan to illustrate that point, among other points, but this is one of the main points that he illustrates. We all know the story. The first two people who pass by the man who was robbed and beaten and left for dead by the side of the road, the first two people who pass by him are a priest and a Levite. And the reason, though it's unstated in the story, it would have been readily understood by the listeners to this parable. The reason they don't go over and check on this guy who is left for dead, who appears for all intents and purposes to be dead by the side of the road, is if they go over to check on him and see if he's alive, they would have to touch him in the process. And if they touched him and he ended up being dead as he appeared to be, then they would become ritually unclean under the law of Moses for a certain period of time and have to go through a purification process. 
In other words, they would have violated the law of Moses even though they had inadvertently done so by touching a dead body. And so it was out of scrupulosity and out of their heightened religious observance and their slavish obedience to the commandments that neither the priest nor the Levite went over to help the guy who was beaten and left for dead at the side of the road. So what the parable of the Good Samaritan is teaching, I believe, is that not only should we help others who are down and out and not pass them by in the roadway, but we should take care of them. And that's a good enough message by itself. And that is the message that is usually taken from this story. But what I believe the deeper message is, is that we should not use our slavish obedience to the commandments in order to justify ourselves from not helping out others who are beaten and left for dead by the side of the road. In other words, the reason that the priest and the Levite did not help this guy who was beaten and left for dead by the side of the road is precisely because they were so religious and so scrupulous in keeping all the commandments of God. Now, we can readily recognize in the parable of the Good Samaritan how twisted this way of thinking is. How on earth could anybody be so caught up in their religiosity that they think that keeping the commandments of God is somehow more important than helping out a human being who has been robbed, beaten up, and left for dead by the side of the road. And that is the question we're left with. Indeed, when it's put in the form of this parable, it's easy to see that that is a case of misplaced priorities. No amount of religiousness should keep somebody from helping another human being. In fact, it is the religiousness itself that should cause them to help the other human being, not prevent them from helping the other human being. Yet what is so clear to us in the parable of the Good Samaritan is obviously not clear to the leaders of the LDS church when it comes to their position on the LGBTQ community. Because what they are doing to that community is exactly the same thing that the priest and the Levite are doing in the parable of the Good Samaritan. They are refusing to help somebody else out, not because they are not religious enough, but because they are too religious, because they have put priority on keeping the commandments of God over ministering to the marginalized in the community when it is actually obedience to the first commandment of God that should cause them to be ministering to the marginalized in the community. Just like the Samaritan, the third person who passes by, actually he doesn't pass by, he helps out this guy who's beaten and left for dead by the side of the road. And exactly as Jesus does throughout his ministry as it's recorded in the New Testament. The first commandment is not an excuse for violating the second commandment. The first commandment is the injunction and indeed provides the necessity for following the second commandment. And at any point where there is a perceived conflict between the first commandment and the second commandment, it is always the first commandment that must give way to the second commandment. We know that Paul talks about this later on in the New Testament as the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law, that it is the letter of the law that giveth death, but it is the spirit of the law that giveth life. We are able in other circumstances in the LDS church to correctly apply this idea. For instance, on my mission, we were supposed to be home every day at the apartment by 9 o'clock p.m. Lights would be out at 10.30, but we were supposed to be home by 9 o'clock. That was the mission rule. And yet everybody understood that if we happened to get into somebody's house, which was a very rare occurrence, we're out knocking on people's houses in the evening up till 9. If we happen to get into somebody's house, say at 8.30, and we are teaching a discussion that goes past 9 o'clock, that's okay. Because guess what? The discussion takes priority over the mission rule. Ministering to somebody else, which is certainly what we saw teaching the gospel on my mission, ministering to somebody else takes priority over the mission rule of being back at the apartment 
by 9 o'clock. We don't pack up in the middle of a discussion and head home because we have to be there by 9 and that's the mission rule. Love always trumps the law. The law cannot trump love. Otherwise, you run into the situation that Jesus is identifying in the parable of the Good Samaritan. When the law trumps love, you have the priest and the Levite passing by the man beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. That is the illustration of the law trumping love. That is the illustration of the first commandment trumping the second commandment. The Samaritan, on the other hand, the good Samaritan is the illustration of love trumping the law. Of the second commandment trumping the first commandment. And yet there is nobody in the history of the New Testament, as far as I am aware, who has ever come away from this parable thinking that the priest and the Levite got it right and the Samaritan got it wrong. I know I'm hitting this point over and over again, but I'm trying to make it clear enough that Elder Oaks can understand what I'm saying. So as I say, the LDS Church is able to see this idea of the spirit of the law being more important than the letter of the law in such mundane affairs as missionaries being home by 9 o'clock at night, but they appear to be incapable of transferring that same sentiment and that same understanding over to the issue of allowing members of the LGBTQ community into the church on an equal footing. And this is why so many members of the church are beginning more and more to see the leaders of the church as acting like Pharisees and not like Jesus. And in few places is this contrast more marked than in their treatment of homosexuals and members of the LGBTQ community. And even though Elder Oak spends an entire talk trying to explain why it is that they are justified in treating that community as second-class citizens within the church, all he really does is end up equating himself and the other leaders of the church more and more with the Pharisees as they are described in the New Testament. The next talk is given by President Russell M. Nelson. We're not going to have time to get to that talk tonight. I'll start the next podcast with that talk because that's about all the time I have for this podcast right now. So once again, for those of you sheltering at home during this coronavirus and also for those of you not sheltering at home, please remember, wash your hands frequently with soap and hot water. Stay away from crowds. Maintain a social distance of at least six feet from the nearest person. If you have to cough, cough into your elbow and not upon your neighbor, and together we will lick this coronavirus. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.